0: Alrighty, well anyways, you know my name is Eric Birch, I'm one of the associate pastors here, and uh, we're studying the book of Revelation, Uh, singular, yes. And uh, last week we concluded the uh, first three chapters, which were of course uh, the messages written to um, the seven churches in Asia Minor. And we saw how those messages that were there um, to those seven churches are just as relevant today that we have churches that uh, fit in those molds, if you will, or that resemble those churches. Um, And and that's been continuing on for, you know, obviously two millennia that we've seen churches like that. And we saw in the the message there that there was dangers um, that believers face uh, across the board, right, in each of those seven churches. So in Ephesus, they lost their first love. They lost that excitement, Which which they started that they had when they first became Christians, in Pergamum they were compromising the truth of biblical doctrine, and unfortunately we really see a lot of that today. People that have lost the absolute truth of Scripture, they have they have decided to rearrange it so that it fits their own personal opinion instead of holding true to the Word of God. Uh, In Thyatira they were compromising the truth of biblical morality. Um, they were, were subscribing to a worldview uh, of, of lasciviousness that, that was just not consistent uh, with biblical purity. Uh, in Sardis, they were spiritually dead. Um, they again had not they had not taken advantage, if you will, of the of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit's guidance in your life. The fact that He's a very real part of the Trinity that will live with you and guide you uh, in your life. Uh, Philadelphia, they were failing to persevere. They were starting to just run out of energy, if you will. They were just tired of working hard. Again, these churches were under different forms of persecution. Um, And then finally we saw in Laodicea that they had settled for this lukewarm relationship with God. They kind of had God in their pocket. He was there if they needed him, but for the most part they were just enjoying life. They really were not realizing that everything that they had had come from God, um, and those are the the um, challenges that the churches see today. Uh, so nothing has changed um, as far as those challenges go. Now, chapter four starts off kind of a new perspective. Chapters four and five we talk about is the throne room, um, and so John, remember now that the John is on the island of Patmos, and he's he's having these visions, and he's being told to write down what he's told to write down and to write down what he's experiencing, right? The, what he's seen. Um, and in chapter 4, John gets swept up in the spirit um, and is peering through the very door of heaven. Okay, um, And he beholds the image of this sovereign God in all of his majesty. Um, and, re- and we have this, this God that's fully in charge. He's fully in control of the course of human history. Um, and it seems today like the church is unable to resist the world it's in. We see so much of this degradation within the values of the church. We see the churches that are persecuted in other places in the world. We see us, we're not so much persecuted as much as we're kind of just crumbling away. I think of the, the, so many of the churches in the, in, in the United States today are more like, they're, like, affected by rust. And if you ever had to deal with rust, rust just kind of, there's an there's a, uh, album I remember that Neil Young did called Rust Never Sleeps. And, and, and that's what rust does, right? Rust just grows. And you don't see it. It just does its thing. Um, the, um, and before you know it, something just rusts completely through, and it falls off or it falls apart. And it just rusts away. Because it allows it, you know, if you don't do something about it, if you don't take a proactive approach to it, then things fall apart. Um, And the world we live in today is 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 seems to be moving away from God. And not only is he moving away from God, but but they they um, we're being told things that we have to do. Um, I saw. I read an article just the other day about um, a school board that's mandated that all the teachers address the students according to their preferred sex of the day. So whether they are today feel like a boy or a girl, then the teachers have to address the kids according to whatever they feel like they are today. Um, yeah. So I won't pick that topic, but the um, if you're curious, uh, I'd be happy to discuss it with you later. But the thing we have to remember about is that God's in charge. So for everything we see going on, and at times we think, you've got to be kidding me. You know, I have people that are like, it's got to be the end times. I mean, everything is coming apart. But we have to remember that God's in charge. No matter what the political pressures are, what the sociological movements are, God's in charge. It's his church. It's his body. We don't have to worry about what's going to happen to the church, because God's got the church. And at his appointed time, the scroll of destiny is going to be handed to the Lamb, and he will open the seals, and the end times will come. Exactly what that looks like? I don't know. We have opinions, lots of them. Um, But the important part is to know that regardless of what happens, the end is in his control. All right, so we're going to jump into chapters 4 and 5. And 4 and 5, again, are called the, the throne room vision. Um, and it 's a real departure from where we were with the first three chapters, and Chapter Four kind of starts this new experience for John right because before remember he 's just writing down everything that Jesus is telling about the churches, but now he gets swept up in this vision and and the central focus of this vision is the throne of God, and we see the the, the animals and the elders in this this huge, glorious throne room, and John is experiencing this vision um, of this, this t- amazing throne room. Um, so let's start with um, Revelation 4, uh, verse 1. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Now, there's importance that the, uh, this way that this begins. So first of all, we know that it's in the future. Um, John sees this door standing open that opens up a vision to heaven, uh, and he's invited to come to the door. Now, we don't know if he just comes up to the door or he steps through the door, but the key is that he's able to see all the things that are going on. And we know it's in the future because it's so that it must take place after these things. So what are these things that it has to happen after? Well, that's the seven churches. So you realize there's no real time stamp that occurs between the seven churches and the next event, only that it's in the future. Right? So there's, it's, and it's, I always get a kick out of people that try to predict the end. You know, there's, that's happened since the people knew there was an end. People started predicting it. And one thing I'm pretty convinced of, trying to predict the end is probably not a good idea. Uh, but all we know is that there will be a transition from those churches to an end time. Um, and that's the important part. Um, so we see that, again, there's, we have nothing to make the timing of the event specific. Um, and this is a spiritual process that he's going through. Um, remember, verse 2 it started there and said, Immediately I was in the Spirit. So when we hear that, it kind of begs the question, When were you not in the Spirit? In other words, was there a transition period between the time that he was writing the letters to the churches and he was now brought back into the Spirit? So we don't know if there was a transition part in there. Um, so you know, it could have been a continual process. It could have been, you know, gave him a night to rest before he had to start writing again. I don't know. We don't know. right? But there's, there was a break there. Now, that process of being in the Spirit to get prophecy is not unusual. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Uh, there's many places. We see it in Ezekiel 11.1, 1, 1 Kings 22.19, uh, Amos 3.7, uh, all these are examples of where they sort of left their body into a spiritual experience to hear what God or the angels were telling them. So this idea of prophetic rapture is not new uh, to the community that would have initially read this message. Um, and realize that these descriptions that we're having, therefore, are descriptions of things that are seen that are spiritual. Right? He's ex- Experiencing something that's absolutely supernatural. And he's trying to explain it as a person who lives in the world. And he's trying to explain it to people that live in the world. Imagine, if you will, if a first century Christian looked up and saw a jet airliner go by. Imagine trying to explain that. They have nothing that compares. Right? They're going to say, oh, it's like a bird, except the wings don't flap. And it has, like, really shiny feathers and it makes a weird noise, but I don't know what it is. You know, it's, they have just no way to explain it. And so that's where John is. He's looking at this throne room and seeing something that's absolutely supernatural, and he's trying to explain it in words he knows, in words that make that he can translate it to. So we have to be careful, because what tends to happen is people want to go, oh, that must mean this, and that must mean that. No, it might. I'm not saying it doesn't, but... And, I'm, and that's what I told before. I don't want to get into all the opinions about all this stuff. We'd be here all day, um, which is fine by me, but I suspect most of you have something else to do. Um. <laughs> all righty. So anyway, you get the idea here. We're not going to try to explain all this stuff in, in super detail. So the royal throne starts here with verse 3. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. Now the first thing you notice is that John doesn't try to explain the person sitting on the throne as a person. There's no reference that he looks like a person, right? He takes that he looks like these stones and this glow, this this light that's coming from it. Um, And the stones that they are referring to are not new to the Jewish tradition. Um, And we have to be cautious that we don't look at those stones the way we think of those stones today. Example. Jasper in Arizona and most of the United States is an opaque red stone. Um, It's that way because it's made of silicon dioxide and iron oxide, and together those make this sort of dark red stone. But that's only one of many types of jasper. Um, There's a jasper that's known as chalcedony that's in the Middle East that's translucent. Um, It's still red, but it's translucent, right? meaning light can pass through it. Right? The same thing when we look at um, Sardius. So, Sardius got its name from Sardis, word, it's mined. Um, and it's also um, a translucent stone. And we know this because uh, Pliny the Elder, who was a Roman historian and naturalist that wrote toward the end of the first century, described that stone in um, its characteristics and in. If you want some interesting reading, that's a, it's a great book that's got a lot of the stuff from the perspective of that first century context. But he describes it as this sort of reddish-brown stone that allows light to pass through it. Uh, so it's translucent again. And the other part that's really kind of cool about those stones is their crystalline structure, much like the emerald, allows light to pass through and be broken into the rainbow, the colors of the rainbow. Right, And the rainbow is really significant, long before Skittles. And the the we look at the rainbow, right, it was the promise that God made to the people that he wouldn't destroy them again. And we see other places in Scripture where God appears as the rainbow. Um, and this idea, remember, the rainbow, this idea, he went away from the bow of destruction, right, because we think of a bow back then was a bow like bow and arrow. It was a big bow that that was judgment, God's judgment. Well, that bow was replaced with the rainbow, um, which is now mercy instead of judgment. Right. So the rainbow is is very specific about what it means and what its shape is in. Right. Um, all right. So we read that in. Um, Ezekiel 1, verse 28, As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. God is described as light throughout Scripture. Right? We read it in 1 Timothy 6, Psalm 104, and a number of other places. Okay? In addition, uh, there's meaning attached to those stones in Jewish history. If you recall, the ephod that was worn by the high priest had 12 stones in it. Three of those stones were jasper, sardis, and emerald. Uh, Jasper is associated with qualities of majesty and holiness and purity. Sardis is connected with judgment and wrath, and the emerald is associated with mercy. So again, there's some specificity to those stones in Jewish history that we probably don't have with us today. okay? And that's really important as we try to understand what they meant by it. Because again, he's describing what he sees in this great throne room vision to this first century church in the context that he understands and that they understand. Now, the 24 thrones and 24 elders, now that has um, a lot of opinions as far as who they were, as you might imagine. Um, there are those that believe it re- represents the 24 star gods of the Babylonian pantheon. Probably not. Uh, some believe that it's the 24 members of the Aaronic priesthood that's described in 1 Chronicles. So if you recall, during the, when they first set up the Aaronic priesthood, They've got 16 from one group and 8 from another, and they put them together, and they're now in charge of the Aaronic, the Aaron's priesthood. So that made 24 people. So that's what people, some people think that's who they are. And that they're now worshiping in heaven, um, again, because they're obviously long gone, that they're worshiping in heaven in a perfect way that they wouldn't have been able to do had they been on earth. So that's a possibility. Again, we're just talking possibilities. I'm not picking anything. Um, there's a large number that believe that it represents both the 12 patriarchs as well as the 12 apostles. And now you get 24 that way. Um, so people believe that. And others kind of believe they're just 24 angelic beings that are surrounding the throne and giving the proper worship to the glory of the Lord. Right? Um, regardless of who they are, The key is, is that they're wearing white robes and golden crowns, right? And we know that white robes signal purity and righteousness and golden crowns authority. And we'll see later that they're therefore in this position of righteousness and authority, and yet their supplication to the center of the throne, to God, right? So they give up their authority and their righteousness in respect for god central to the throne all right so the throne let's talk about throne and the worship of the creator in verse five out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of god now that's got to be a sight right so you've got this this Glorious light, this rainbow of colors, these, these, this, this just amazing view. And then in that, you've got peals of, of thunder and lightning and just, ooh, you know? I mean, it's got to be just, John's got to be like going, whoa, my brain's going to blow up. The, just this amazing picture that he's given, right? And again, we see this before. Remember how God appears to Israel in Sinai. Right? If there was any question as to authority, go to there to how he, he appeared to them. So let's go to Exodus 19, verses 16 to 18. And so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Can you imagine that? Now, of course, what was the response from Israel? Uh, Moses, you go up there. We'll we'll wait here. You know, you you go up there. (laughs) It had to be amazing, right? I mean, the mountain is literally. Mount Sinai is a big place. I mean, it's a big mountain, it's not like a hill. It's big, and it's shaking violently. It's covered in clouds, lightning, because God has descended so that he could be in the presence of his people. That's what John is looking at. I mean, it's got to be like a wow mindset, right? And that's how we should be seeing God, right? This, This just amazing, we can't wrap our head around amazing I, I don't. There's no like, next noun because no noun fulfills who God really is to be able to understand that. So clearly God is to be feared. And again, it's not a fear in the sense of, oh my gosh, what's he going to do for me? It's a fear in reverence. It's in recognition to his holiness, his purity. All right, the sea of glass. Verse 6. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and then the center and around the throne. Now, again, this has context in Jewish history, right the The crystal sea was the um, in, we read about it in Genesis, uh, was the idea of the celestial sea, um, and there was a separation, if you remember, there's the waters under the firmament and the waters above the firmament, and God lived in the heavens in the upper firmament. And there was this, this mirror-like surface. Um, we see a similar description of that in Ezekiel 1. In Job 37, the sky is described as a polished surface of hard bronze. Like he's looking up to heaven, what he sees is this mirrored surface uh, that's reflecting downward. Um, so again, the, the this, this sea that's in front of them is taking all of this light and lightning and rainbows and reflecting it back up into this throne room. I mean, it's, it's just got to be this amazing play of light. Uh, and John's trying to explain it in words that he can sum up, the words that he can come up with. Not quite to the same scale, clearly, but I can remember trips to Colorado when you, we sat on a trail and you looked out and you could see snow-capped mountains as far as the eye could see and deep valleys and, and the, the trees would be, in fall, they'd be shimmering in these yellows and oranges and reds and, and, and this breeze would come through and, and it was like, oh, you know, it was just amazing. I was just like, God, you are amazing. It's phenomenal, it's beautiful. You know. And that's that 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 just all oh, of God the Creator. I mean, there's certain things in life to me that just really amaze me. You know, I to see a baby born. I know for some of you probably not as pleasant an experience, but I thought it was pretty amazing. I mean <laughs> the uh, I mean that whole process is just phenomenal, you know, and, and again, like I said, I, you see things in nature, and just you're just like, wow, what an amazing God. I mean, it's, it's, I always get a kick when people say, well, you know, how can you believe in God when there's science? You have it backwards. Everything more I hear about from science, I just see a more amazing God. I find a God that's just incredible. The detail. I was reading the other day about how the whole mRNA works with the vaccines and all this kind of stuff, and God planned all that. It's all built that way. I'm thinking, wow, that is one smart dude. <laughs> I don't say that sacrilegiously. I mean, seriously, it's amazing. All right, all right. So this next verse is—I'm not even going to try to get really into because, again, the um, there's so much to it, um, and, and there's so much speculation on what it is. Right. So the four creatures. Um. And the four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had the face of that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. So we see the four creatures as sort of similar to the ones that we see in Ezekiel. Um, but we, the important part is they stand between the 24 elders and the central throne. So they're, in a sense, standing um, in, in sort of like guard around the, stu- around the throne, if you will. Um, and they are leading the worship. Um, And so they're they're very similar to the seraphim we see in Isaiah who are lifting up their voices to God and singing holy, holy. Um, And there's all sorts of animal references that you could attach to this. And believe me, there are lots of them. And you can find them in Daniel, Ezekiel, Hebrews, to name a few. Uh, I'm not going to try to explain them. Um, But we want to know what's really important about this is that these four creatures are these exalted angelic beings that are leading the worship. Um, And what's most significant about these is what they're saying, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. Day and night, these four creatures are singing praise to God. Unending. Um. Like the sleepless angels in the book of Enoch, they stand before God in endless prayer, in endless song. Like the seraphim of Isaiah 6, they're singing, holy, 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 but theirs is directed at those attributes of God which are central to the apocalypse. His holiness, his power, and his transcendence. God is forever. He was, he is, he will always be. Fully transcendent. He is not bound by time in any way. He created time. So the churches are about to enter this period of severe testing and persecution, um, and there's a declaration here of God's unlimited might that gives them strength and encouragement. They know no matter what the physical world is going to throw at them, they have power in the spiritual world because it's God that is all power, fully transcendent, is with them, giving them strength and encouragement. And we have the exact same promise. There are things that will happen in this physical world that will happen, but we don't have to be beaten down to it because we have God to rest on. And we know where we're going next. And it's amazing when you think about it, The life that you live here is like the life of a blade of grass compared to that life that we'll have in heaven. And I think some days are long, and yet a blade of grass is around for a moment, right? A few days, they dry up, and they're gone. So think of that comparison of how wonderful it's going to be, and not only how wonderful it's going to be, you won't even remember what this life was like. You'll be so caught up in how wonderful that life is going to be bottom line is we can trust in the Lord. No matter what happens in our life, we can trust in the Lord. All right. All right, uh, verse 9, the supplication. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who sits on the throne and worship him, who live forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. So every time that the four creatures um, give glory and honor God, the elders prostrate themselves on the ground, take off their crowns um, and worship God. Um, and that removal of their crown and this and this falling face down is the proper response to the majesty and power and glory of God. They recognize that while they may have had power before with crowns and whatnot, that before God they have no power. That they are giving up whatever power they had to the one who truly holds all power. Pretty amazing. All right, the adoration, verse 11. And this is what those... 24 elders are saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So the praise of the elders is different slightly than the, than the four creatures. It's addressed directly to God and based on his work in creation rather than his divine attributes. The words are taken from the political language of the day. Again, the context is really important. The verse, you are worthy, is what greeted the entrance of the emperor in a triumphal procession. Remember that toward the end of the first century they were getting into this emperor worship where the Caesars were considered gods. So that, again, you are worthy greeted the entrance of the emperor in triumphal procession. And the verse, our Lord and our God, was introduced in the cult worship of emperors uh, by Domitian, who was again the Roman emperor at the end of the first century. But for us as Christians, we recognize that that's not who's in charge. Right? For the Christian, the only one who sits on the heavenly throne is worthy. Any other claim of worthy is blasphemous. God is the one and only. There is no other God. And we see that today with this argument of pluralism. No, there is one God, He's in charge. He sits on the throne. That's it. Now you notice that in the earlier doxology they ascribe glory and honor to God. The elders add power. Um, and he is worthy because in accordance with his will he created all things. And this means that all things existed first in God's will and then came in at the appointed time. Now let that think sink in a bit. All of us existed in God's will from the beginning of time well before we actually existed. He knew every one of us. He knew everything about every one of us. That's pretty amazing. I think to me that, the, that, that and I've said this before, the fact that God, knowing what was going to happen, did it anyway and that before the beginning of time, he loved us and created us as we are. Are you still my foster kid? Yeah, hey, you may have surprised your parents, but you didn't surprise God. He knew you were coming, um, and he's got a plan for your life, and he's got a plan for our lives. And so as we close today, I just want to really reiterate that, that our proper response to God is just unending praise. Unending worship, continuous faith in the fact that he's got this, he's in charge. Lord, we just thank you that you are indeed all-powerful, holy, 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 almighty, the one that we can put trust in and know that you have it. Regardless of what the world throws at us, regardless of what we hear in the news, regardless of what we see on the social media, regardless of it all, you are in charge. It's your church. In your name, amen.